and welcome to the Real Weird Podcast. October 3rd, Communion of the Cursed, the Exorcist franchise. Hey everybody, so we're back again. We are going to be talking about the Exorcist franchise. Yes, all five movies. And going into the details behind, you know, the stories, the production. And the main reason I'm doing this is because I recently got word... Uh, not recently as to the release of this, but, you know, re- uh, recently in terms of uh, recording this, that there is going to be a remake, actually, coming out uh, next year, 2023. And it is going to be helmed by none other than David Gordon Green of the most recent Halloween remakes. Not remakes, sequels. Sorry, you know what I mean. So I'm going to say I am cautiously optimistic uh, I don't really see the point in remaking The Exorcist because, frankly, I consider it to be one of those movies where it's like, it's almost a perfect movie, honestly, for me. But I'm gonna, but I'm gonna give the benefit of the doubt. I'm gonna go see it because I had my doubts about, you know, doing a reboot of Halloween. But in as much as I love that franchise, but you know, the most recent movies have been really, really good. Um, I still think Halloween Kills was a bit of a letdown from 2018 one, but it was still decent. At least it, it did at least feel on par with its predecessor, just a bit of a step down. So, you know, any director who can take that IP and, in you know, give it the shot of adrenaline that it needed to that degree, I think it's worth at least seeing what he can do with something like The Exorcist. So I'm going to go through all five franchise, all five franchises, Jesus Christ. I'm going to go through all five movies in the franchise. Uh, so yeah, we're going to start with the 1973 original uh, by directed by William Friedkin. Uh, I'm not going to say much about it just because, I mean, what can I say that hasn't been said a million times? I mean, forgetting... I mean, ignoring all the rip-off movies like, you know, Exorcism of Emily Rose or just to name a few others, uh, like Beyond the Door, Abby. Oh, God. Just ignoring the sheer amount of rip-offs and parodies. There's been, like, you know, documentaries and books written about everything that went into making this. Uh... But yeah, The Exorcist was released in 1973, eventually gained a reputation as the scariest movie ever made. I'm going to say this. If you need jump scares and loud, creepy music to be scared, fuck off and avoid this. It is scary because of how grounded and real everything feels. William Friedkin, the director, was known primarily for crime drama and documentaries before this. And it's, sidebar, it is kind of weird to me that, like, uh, three of my favorite horror films, this, uh, The Shining, and uh, Alien. They're all made by... They're, they're three of my favorite horror films, but they're all made by directors who at this time were not known for horror. You know, Like I said, Friedkin was crime drama documentary guy. Ridley Scott was primarily known for historical dramas uh, like The Duelist. And Kubrick made... The Killing, which was sort of a noir film, a war film called Paths of Glory, 
Spartacus. He made Barry Lyndon, which is a sort of period film, and 2001, one of the most iconic sci-fi films, just to name a few. But yeah, it's weird to think about some of the best horror coming from people who weren't primarily known for horror. But I think in Friedkin's case, it's the most obvious. He brings that documentary feel to it with how stark, grounded, matter-of-fact, and realistic the camera work is. Everything is just sort of fly on the wall. There's not a lot of... He's almost like the polar opposite of like Sam Raimi, in a way. And I love Sam Raimi. I don't mean that as a dig, but like Sam Raimi is all about that camera movement. And Friedkin, no, we're just going to have the camera sit here and we're just going to let the horror unfold. And there's a quote from him that I think sums it up. It's in um, Fear of God documentary, which is uh, a documentary made by the BBC film critic Mark Kermode. He says, it's not a film about Dracula. It's not a film about the alien. It's about a real street in a real town. And up inside that house, the third floor bedroom, is a real little girl who just so happens to be possessed by a demon. And I think that's the main source of the horror on a technical level. It's got little to no embellishment or crazy editing or camera work that a lot of other horror movies since would use. You just watch the events unfold. It's the difference between terror and horror. Terror is there's something menacing on the other side of that door. Horror is the door is open and you can see all the shit that's going on over there. You're just along for the ride. And that's, I think the thing that works best for it is that, you know, it's not throwing in a lot of creepy shit just to sell you on the pre- on the premise. Everything else feels normal. And then there's just this one thing that's explicitly supernatural that doesn't play by mortal rules. So top of the camera work on the creative end of things, the original novelist, William Peter Blatty, worked very closely with Friedkin in adapting the screenplay, and he wrote about it supposedly inspired by a real case of exorcism, I think it was in Baltimore, and he wrote the book in Georgetown, with Georgetown in mind, talking with the local Jesuit priests, and I think that's the combination that works really, really well, because Blatty, he buys it, but Friedkin doesn't really give a shit about the religious aspects of it, but he, you kind of feel like he buys it too. It's a weird thing to say, but it's almost like, as I said again, it's almost like he's just shooting a documentary about a possessed girl. And then the exorcism that follows, he's not trying to like scare you any other way other than just showing what a fucked up situation is going on. And there's also hints of, you know, abuse because the drunk director who gets killed off Burke Dennings we don't see him die but it's implied that when he was drunk he went into Reagan's bedroom and then he's found at the bottom of those stairs with his head turned completely around and we don't see it but it's described to us that way by Detective Kinderman Um, as far as the music goes it's very very famous but uh, I will say this Tubular Bells, what most people would just call the exorcist theme, it's surprisingly very... It's used once in the movie in a scene that's not scary at all. Which is kind of a weird thing to hear. Other music includes uh, Christoph Penderecki, who is a 
Polish composer. Uh, Friedkin also yeah, Friedkin also said that he heard a band called Tangerine Dream. Uh, if any of you want to, you know, something nice to listen to, put on Tangerine Dream at some point. It's really good. But Friedkin said that he would have um, uh, asked them to score the movie earlier if he had heard them earlier. And the rest of the film is subjected to this very subtle manipulation where everything has this sort of like dry crackling sound. Um, one of the guys who worked on the sound design also worked on El Topo, which is a famous Western movie by Alejandro Jodorowsky. It's one of my favorite movies, but you know, I'll talk about that at some other later date. Uh, and I especially want to give a shout out to, uh, Dick Smith, the makeup artist who did a lot of the makeup and prosthetic work. Cause, uh, Reagan's face does not change at all in once we see it and it's just the masking and like the scars on her face. And it's the justification is that she was using the crucifix to like, you know, scratch her face up. But especially with the age progression makeup on Max von Sydow, um, you know, famous to anyone who's seen seventh seal or a bunch of other stuff or who, uh, play, and for anyone who played Skyrim, he's the guy who did the voice for Esbern, so you can get a idea of what he sounds like. But Max von Sydow, I didn't know who he was the first time that I saw this movie because I hadn't watched any, like, uh, for example, Ingmar Bergman films. So I didn't know who the hell Max von Sydow was. I just thought he was some old guy. And then I see him in The Force Awakens, and that's just what he looked like. It's... <laughs> yeah, someone said... The old age makeup on Max von Sydow is probably some of the best ever because like 45 years later, that's just what he looked like. And he was the one playing Father Marin, the old priest. And I did just want to say the thing I thought was kind of hilarious was that uh, Ellen Burstyn, who plays Chris McNeil, the, the mother, is that she was probably the most famous person in the movie aside from, you know, Kinderman. He was played by Lee J. Cobb. But Ellen Burstyn wasn't even the first choice. Uh, Jane Fonda actually turned the role down. Um, Audrey Hepburn was considered for the role as well, but she wanted to film in Rome, which one would have made it too expensive, and also it was you know written with Georgetown in mind. And uh, what was it? And Bancroft, uh, Mrs. Robinson from The Graduate. She had just gotten pregnant, so they would have had to wait like at least seven or eight months. So they went with Ellen Burstyn, who was probably the most famous person in it. Um, Jason Miller, who played Father Karras, I don't think hadn't been in any films at that point yet. Um, uh, Max von Sydow is not particularly well-known to American audiences at this point, and Linda Blair obviously was an unknown, so... Ellen Burson and Lee J. Cobb were probably the two most famous people in the movie. So it's not like they were really relying on star power here either. And I want to say this before I close off and move on to, oh God, Exorcist 2. Uh, I suppose I have to talk about that at some point. But the complaint that I hear a lot is that I've had people tell me it's not scary 
and especially if you're not religious, I'm an atheist. I'm not religious at all. I still find this movie scary. And I think I would think the fact that I'm an atheist does make it scary because if I ran into this, I'd have no clue how to deal with it. But the thing that makes it scary to me is that it's not even the supernatural element. It's not the demon that makes it scary to me. It's scary because, I mean, Chris McNeil's character is a famous actress. So, you know, she's in town in this house that's not their own. I mean, it's a very nice house, but it's still a setting she's not familiar with. One of my biggest anxieties that I get when I'm traveling is I'm going to be hurt, is that I'm going to get injured or fall ill when I'm out of town, away from everything that I'm, you know, comfortable with. And I mean, I could do this. That could happen to me in a place like the UK where the healthcare is better than it is here. And I'd still have that anxiety because it's still a place that I'm not familiar with. So there's that. And there's also the, you know, the utter terror. I mean, if any of you listening are parents, I mean, think of how this, how you'd feel if your kid was just spazzing out, talking in tongues, doing all this weird shit and no one can tell you what's wrong with her, wrong with them. The psychiatrists don't know what the fuck is going on. The doctors don't know what the fuck is going on. She goes to a priest, and the priest tries to talk her out of it. Because, and this was true even in real life, exorcism was a fringe idea at this point, even for the Catholic Church. There's this long, long process you have to go through to get officially authorized for it. And... Even in there, the priest tries to talk her out of it because he understands that there are things such as psychosis, mental illness. The first time he goes to see Reagan, you know, he says something like, you know, look, your daughter doesn't say she's a demon. She says she's the devil himself. If you've seen as many psychotics as I have, you know that's the same thing as saying you're Napoleon Bonaparte. <laughs> and, yeah, it's, I mean, it's a supernatural aspect, but it's preying upon a rather natural and, you know, normal human fear. Several, actually. And I think the fact that there's so much that's just suggested and not shown, um, I feel like that's the thing that makes it so scary and the reason it holds up so well. And, yeah, I mean, it's not shocking anymore because we've seen so many things that are so much worse in that department, but... It's still scary, I'd argue that. And to the people that say it's boring, fuck off, all right? As I've said, the best horror movies could be remade as dramas if you take the horror out of them. And that's basically what the first, like, half to two-thirds of the movie is. Is this this gradual wearing down of, you know, the mother, because she doesn't know what the hell's going on, and no one else can tell her what's going on with her daughter. So, obviously, The Exorcist did very well. Uh, kind of got mixed reviews at the time, actually. Um, but that meant, you know, as I said in the Scream 5, there's always a sequel. And that's where we get Exorcist to The Heretic. Fuck. Anyway, so, yeah. 
I'm going to say this. I don't, I can see what they were trying to do with this movie. So the studio, so the studio, uh, tried to, so Warner brothers basically said, all right, we want a sequel to this. We want to reel back from the shocking elements and make it more psychological and metaphysical. Uh, neither Friedkin nor Blatty had any interest in doing it. Uh, Linda Blair agreed to come back only if she didn't have to wear demon makeup. And Max von Sydow came back to do some minor, minor reshoots. But here's the problem. John Borman, who I've never been able to find a source for this, but I have heard rumors that said that he turned down directing the original. And he said that not only did he not want to direct it, he said he hoped that he, no, one out, no one else ever did. But for some reason, he was the one that was approached to make the sequel. Now, I'm going to say Linda Blair herself did say that the original script was wonderful, and she joined mostly because of a combination of that and getting to work with Richard Burton. Apparently at the time in need of money due to the fact he was going through a very, very messy divorce from with Elizabeth Taylor. But Borman wanted to incorporate more metaphysical and psychological, theological ideas than the original. And like I said, the studio wanted the newer movie to dial down the shock factor. And none other than Stanley Kubrick was offered the director's chair. But he turned it down and said that the only way to make the sequel work was to make it even more shocking and more brutal. So as you might imagine, it went through a turbulent production. Disputes between Borman and his writers led to like five different rewrites after production began. Now I should say, rewriting while production is going on isn't always a bad thing. Uh, Spirited Away by Hayao Miyazaki something similar happened and not only did that movie turn out great it was the first anime film to get a best picture at the oscars but this did not go so well among other things father lamont uh played by richard burton is tasked to investigate the events of the first movie uh five years after the fact and it recounts that Father Merritt encountered the demon 40 years prior, which doesn't make any sense because uh, it's hinted at in the first movie and the later, uh, the two prequels both say that this happened like after World War II, but this would put it like before World War II. And there's also no real answer given as to why the locusts keep showing up so much. I'm guessing it's supposed to be symbolic, but no one ever figured out what. Uh, Louise Fletcher, of all people, uh, yeah, Nurse Ratchet, was brought in, and she contracted a bladder infection. Borman contracted valley fever. They had to recreate virtually all of the original movie's locations on sets because they couldn't get permission to film on location, and it inflated the budget from its original $9 million up to $14 million. And Linda Blair and Richard Burton... Both had problems showing up on time because Burton repeatedly got drunk and Linda Blair had a coke problem at the time. 
All of it came together and resulted in a film that currently sits at 10% on Rotten Tomatoes. That saw many audiences at the premieres burst into laughter or throw things at the screen or storm out and demand refunds. And in one case, Friedkin reports that a dozen or so uh, a dozen or so audience members at one premiere actually chased some of the studio execs out of the theater and down the street. It made a fair amount of money, but nothing compared to the original, mostly due to the bad reviews. But it also might have had something to do with a other movie that came out in 1978, which I'll touch upon later. Like I said, I, in watching it myself finally for this podcast, because I avoided it for the longest time because I heard how bad it was, I'll say that I was more bored than in it by anything. Lamont has an interesting characterization where he begins to show you know, the signs of lapsed faith. He sees himself as unworthy of the task he's assigned for. But one of the bigger problems with this movie is that there's no immediate threat, and yet every... Every we hear nothing but some people talking about something being vaguely evil and there being some kind of immediate threat, but there isn't one. So we're almost led to believe that there's an immediate threat when there isn't, and it's just a jumbled mess of ideas that failed to live up to its own goals. It didn't meet its predecessor's reputation. And I want to throw this last bit on before I move to Exorcist 3, just as a little reminder to, uh, you know, studio execs not to rely on star power and as a way to, you know, encourage indie filmmakers out there. You don't need a big, a big budget. You don't need to do a legacy project because this movie had Louise Fletcher, an Oscar winner, and it also had several Oscar nominees, James Earl Jones, Ned Beatty, Richard Burton, Uh, Paul Henreid, this was actually his last film role. Some of you might recognize him from uh, Casablanca. He was Victor Laszlo. It had all these people, and it failed. And there was was a relatively low-budget movie, and this was kind of the reason 20th Century Fox was freaking out over the summer here, is that, you know, Warner Brothers had this, you know, big project that's linked to one of their most successful movies ever. And it's got multiple Oscar nominees and an Oscar winner in the cast. Meanwhile, they've got a relatively low-budget movie with a... It's not just a low-budget movie, it's a low-budget sci-fi movie with a novice director and a cast of relative unknowns. That movie was Star Wars. <laughs> yeah, 20th Century Fox was freaking out because The Exorcist 2 was coming out with this star-studded cast, and all they had was some like relatively low-budget sci-fi movie. Yeah, so never, never think that you need to make a legacy project or a remake or a sequel to even if you're a cynical asshole who's only in the movie business to make money. Because sometimes... If you do something original, well, you can just blow everything out of the water. All right, so... <laughs> okay, rants on how important it is to support independent filmmakers over. 
We're moving on to Exorcist 3. <laughs> All right, so I will... Okay, so eventually William Peter Blatty did write a sequel to his original novel in 1983. It was originally a screenplay called Legion, and that was supposed to be the title of the film. Blatty actually protested heavily against including The Exorcist in the title because he correctly predicted that a lot of people would not show up to see it because it would just be another crappy Exorcist sequel in their minds. And he was also frustrated with the production company insisting on an exorcism being in the ending of the movie, which was not in the original script. And this is one of the few cases I know of where the director's cut is actually shorter than the theatrical version. So the basic premise here is that Lieutenant Kinderman, a minor character in the first movie, is set to investigating a number of murders in Georgetown, which match the M.O. of James Veneman. It's who is the... Uh, <laughs> he's obviously based off of the real-life Zodiac killer. He's called the Gemini killer because uh, he would carve the Gemini symbol into his victim's palm, I think. I can't remember what they said. Uh, Lee J. Cobb had died in the interim, so they cast George C. Scott. I should mention both William Friedkin and John Carpenter were both offered the director's chair, but they left due to creative differences, uh, although both of them remained good friends with Blatty. So Blatty just decided, I'll direct it myself, and he brought with him a lot of actors from his previous film, The Ninth Configuration. So this was his second film ever and one of only two. Okay, and so we get to this interesting little side note. Uh, part of the focus in trying to find the Gemini killer, or at least whoever's imitating him, is this patient at a local hospital who's, been am who's an amnesiac who's been catatonic for about 15 years. And he turns out to be the possessed body of Father Karras. And he's also sharing the body with the soul of the Gemini killer. Now, I can't seem to nail down why he was un originally unavailable, but Jason Miller was set to reprise his role as Karras and was set to be the Gemini killer originally, as I understand. But he couldn't fully commit. So Brad Dourif, you might know him best as the voice of Chucky, was cast as the Gemini killer, and he split the screen time with Miller being quote-unquote Karras once the latter could commit. So when it's Karras doing the talking, Miller's is the one on screen. But when it's the Gemini killer, it's Duraf doing the talking. And like the original, it's sh it's scary with how restrained it is. It's it's not that shocking, but it's it's actually more along the lines of a psychological horror or a psychological thriller than a conventional supernatural horror. I'm not a fan of jump scares, but this one had one of the best I've ever seen. Um, yeah, it's definitely a very underrated sequel, and there's a lot of like really, really funny moments, especially when um, Kinderman is hanging out with uh, Father Dyer, who is the uh, priest that gave Karis uh, last rites at the end of the la at the end of the first movie. It's basically just a detective story with a demon involved. And I should mention part of the reason why this one was based off the Zodiac was apparently the Zodiac referred to, 
he referred to the original Exorcist as one of the most brilliant satires, comedic satires he had ever seen. As if to emphasize just how warped the guy's mind was. So, I do just want to say this before we dive into uh, these next two. As a segue, I feel like this is something without really any sort of precedent. So, for this franchise, the first one, undeniable classic. The second one was pulled from theaters so that Borman could re-edit the movie in an attempt to fix some of the more glaring issues. The third one, the production company, as I mentioned, insisted that there be an exorcism in the movie, which is a bit of troll logic because given the fact that the company was the entire reason it was even called Exorcist 3 in the first place. So the two prequels were thought up in the early 2000s, and they both follow a young, younger Father Marin, played by Selen Skarsgård, in his capacity as a sort of archaeologist for the church. So, the first one was written and directed by Paul Schrader, who also uh, wrote Taxi Driver. But Warner Brothers and Morgan Creek were not happy with the final product, so they hired Rennie Harlan. Um, and they reshot like 95% of the movie. And hilariously, Harlan's version got horrifically negative reviews so Schrader was allowed to release his version the next year it also got bad reviews but was a lot better received so there's technically two Exorcist 4s and one of them's usually called Exorcist 5 even though it was made first and they're both prequels of the same time period so yeah it's a weird sort of amalgamation of things going on there Uh, the plot premise is virtually the same in both versions. Father Marin is tasked with investigating a church that was uncovered in East Africa that dates to the 5th century, long before Christianity should have been present in the area. He uncovers some kind of demonic presence sealed in the church, and he also grapples with his own despair, and he's trying to process his trauma from the atrocities he witnessed in World War II. Uh, the strange events going on also spark tension between him, the local tribes, the local uh, colonial British government. Uh, Harlan's version is called Exorcist the Beginning, and it's fairly forgettable. Uh, most of the performances are, are okay. Stellan is fairly believable as a younger Marin. The effects are okay, and the sets are locations and cool. It just doesn't amount to much because the script is so bare-bones. And even the cool ideas that it had was just so poorly executed. As for Dominion, which was Schrader's version, it's a few notches above beginning. It still has the uh, unneeded CGI wild animals, but Schrader definitely put a stylistic stamp on it. It's a very artsy touch, and everything is just soaked in angst. As I like to say, I don't really recommend either, but Dominion is the better of the two prequels. And both Blatty and Roger Ebert both expressed praise for it. So I guess if those two could find something good to say about this movie, then it it's probably worth at least a watch. Yeah, I did just want to... And I'm going to say this about Exorcist 2. I can see where they were going with it before we close out today. I can see where they were going with it. It's poorly made. But I just need to ask this. Martin Scorsese, 
you talk shit about Marvel movies and yet you like this one better than the original. What the actual hell, man? I respect you. You're one of my favorite directors. But how how can you rationalize this? Like at least the Marvel movies are entertaining to watch, even at their worst. Like I'll talk shit about superhero movies too, but negatively comparing them to this? Seriously. I mean, you know, if you do like Exorcist 2, don't worry. You're in good company. It's you, Quentin Tarantino, Martin Scorsese, and Jeffrey Dahmer. (laughs) I'm not kidding, by the way. Apparently someone said that he would sometimes watch this and just sort of like rock back and forth in a trance-like state. (laughs) Anyway, I'm sorry. I'll get off that. Anyway, I hope you guys enjoyed this. Uh, I'm coming back tomorrow to uh, talk about an old French horror movie called Eyes Without a Face. Um, And the day after that will be... I was initially going to do the start of a new format, but I noticed that it was a certain horror actor's birthday. So we'll be doing a spotlight on four uh, lesser-known movies uh, starring, or at least prominently featuring, the late, great Donald Pleasance. And then the day after that, on the 6th, we're going to be doing a bit of a throwback where we're talking about uh, four Technically only three silent films, silent horror films, Haksan, Vampire, Nosferatu, and The Cabinet of Dr. Cagliari. So I hope all of that sounds interesting to you. I am going to head out now. Take care. Good night. Signing off.